Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series that we've been in for uh, about the past month. In the book of 1 Corinthians, this is an epistle, a letter uh, from Paul to a young church in the Roman city of Corinth. We've called our series A Cross-Shaped Community because really what Paul is doing in writing to this very, very messy and broken church, uh, he's writing to remind them that they are to be shaped as a people, as individuals, and as a community uh, by the cross of Jesus. That they're not to be shaped uh, by the story of their culture, by the stories of their family or their uh, culture of origin, but they're to be shaped by the story of the God who gave himself in love to start to view life, uh, all of life, through the lens of the cross, defining greatness and success not by worldly standards, but through the path of humility and sacrifice and love and generosity. And so we are uh, like that church. You know, it's interesting. The church in Corinth is about the same age as this church. It was planted about four years prior to this letter. And so we're seeking, like they were, to look at what it means for us to be a church that is shaped by the cross. And so our passage this morning is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, would you please stand, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 23. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise." For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. Thanks, Kate. You can be seated. You know, one of the largest and most unavoidable trends uh, in our culture is uh, the increasing abandonment of the church. 
uh, that people uh, recognize like never before, it's getting put in our face day after day, the obvious brokenness of the church. And in the face of that brokenness, many people, uh, young people and also older people, uh, look at the brokenness of the church and they say, who needs it? Right? Why, why even bother? Research shows that the, the single largest uh, growing group uh, by survey and by research of uh, religious folks in the U.S. are those who describe themselves as the nuns. So they, uh, not N-U-N's, that's not growing super fast, but uh, nuns is in no religious affiliation. They might describe themselves uh, as religious or spiritual, but they don't have a particular connection to any given uh, religious body or church. Or maybe they've just abandoned organized faith and religion altogether. We saw it in the headlines recently. Pope Francis uh, took a visit to, uh, to Ireland. And while there were crowds there, hundreds of thousands of people gathered to see Pope Francis, the crowds were roughly a fifth the size of when his predecessor, uh, Pope Benedict, visited Ireland. And you go, well, I mean, Ireland, of all of the strongholds of the Catholic faith in the world, has been racked uh, by the recent sex abuse scandals uh, in the Catholic Church. And people are seeing that and saying, you know what, if that's what it means to be a part of the church, no thank you. No thank you. There was an article on the front page of the New York Times last year under the title of The Quiet Exodus that was about the large-scale movement of African-American Christians away from their churches, Not, not necessarily away from the church, but away from the churches that they'd been in in the wake of the most recent spat of police shootings and the heels of the most recent political season, feeling like their church leaders were all talk when it came to matters of racial reconciliation and justice. And so it became an attention-grabbing enough thing to end up on the cover of the New York Times, a quiet exodus. And so the question for us is, how do we find uh, the strength, or quite honestly, the care, to not give up on a broken church. Because it's only naive to look at the church and to look at these stories and go, oh, you know what, the brokenness that they see isn't real. To look at the church and go, nope, it's not broken, requires you to live with your head in the sand, requires you to to live as though what is sinful and hard and awful is not hard. And so what we're going to do this morning and what Paul shows us how to do in this passage is to hold two things in our two hands and live with them both being true. The first is that the church is broken, and the sooner we can be honest about that, the better. That the church is broken. And in the other hand, the church belongs to God. He holds it as its own, and it is his plan to use the church to save the world, to redeem every inch of this creation. So the church is broken, and the church belongs to God. It is his, and it's his plan to save the world. You know, the church in Corinth that Paul is writing this letter to is just as broken or more broken than than our contemporary church. It was a church that was plagued uh, with division, theological division, division around different personalities. It was uh, a church that had had its own share of sex scandals. It was a church that had its own worship wars where people who liked to worship one way argued with people who liked to worship another way. It was a church where the rich often oppressed the poor. This was a broken church. And yet remember how Paul starts his letter. 
to these Christians in chapter 1, verse 2. He says, to those in Corinth, sanctified and called to be holy. To this church that belongs to God, this sanctified and holy church, broken though it is. And that's what we see Paul doing in this chapter. He's not giving up on the church. If I was Paul, I'd be tempted to. Right? He planted this church, uh, he planted the church in Corinth four years ago. Right around the same time that we started working on planning this one. And then he starts getting letters back to him and hearing reports about what a mess the church is. About the sexual brokenness and the division and the anger and all of it. It would be very tempting if you're a pastor at that point to go, Ah, you know what, I'm going to start a new church. Um, the, the, I, you know what, I backed the wrong horse in Corinth. This group of people, uh, they, need, uh, they can go do their own thing, but I'm going to start over. But Paul does not do that. He doesn't do it because God doesn't do it. Because the church belongs to God and he holds us in his hands. And, and Paul can no more give up on the church than God will ever give up on his church. Instead, what Paul does is he reminds the church of who they're called to be. He reminds them of who they were created to be. He reminds them of God's design for the church. And he calls them back to live up to that high calling. It's the same thing that's happened in all of the great renewal and reform movements of the church. It's what Martin Luther believed he was doing in the Protestant Reformation, right? He didn't believe initially that he was out to start a new church, but that he was out to call a broken church back to what it meant to be the church. A church founded on the gospel, a church founded on the grace of God. It's, a, it's what his namesake, uh, hundreds of years later, Martin Luther King believed he was doing as he called the church in America away from racism and division and towards the beloved community. Neither one of those men said, ah, the church is too broken, let's give up on it. Both of them said, no, no, this is, the church is called to be more. It's designed to be more. It will be more. And so that's what Paul uh, does with these Corinthians here. And so what he does is he uses three primary metaphors. Uh, first, the church is God's field. The second, the church is God's building. And the third, the church is God's temple. To remind the Corinthians of who it is that they are called to be, the way that the church was designed to function. And so we are going to look uh, at these things all under the big heading that the church belongs to God as he ends his letter, or as he ends this chapter. All things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So because the church belongs to God, it is his power that causes the church's growth. That's what Paul is talking about here in uh, these first verses, chapter 3, verse 5 through verse 9, when he uses the metaphor that the church is like a field. He's saying the church is like a field, but it's God's power, it's God's work that causes the field to grow. He says, look, I planted this crop in this field, and then I moved on. Apollos, the next pastor to come to Corinth, he watered it, he nurtured it, he tended it. But neither I nor him were, were much to write home about. It's God who gave the growth that you've experienced here. You know, the metaphor of a garden or of a field uh, is, a, is a rich one. And it helps us to have a right-sized view of the human role in God's kingdom, the human role in the growth of God's church, right? I, I'm not particularly good at growing plants. My wife has the green thumb in our family. And as a result, we have living things in our house and in the, in the backyard. 
And what Paul's metaphor draws us to look at is if you want to have a a thriving garden, if you want to have plants, if you want to have life, it's not enough to just wish that it happens. It's not enough just to say, well, I hope that weeds don't grow and grass does. I hope that uh, something good to eat grows from my garden. He says, no, it does take you doing something. Right? Human beings have to do something if you want a garden to grow. You have to plant the right kind of seeds. You have to uh, know what's going to grow in this kind of soil. You have to make sure that they have the right kind of sunlight for what they need. You have to make sure that you fertilize and water. So there are real things that human beings do. And yet human beings cannot grow a garden. You can't grow a field. To, to want a garden to grow is to, to be in dependence on God to give rain if there's a drought uh, your garden won't grow, especially in the era in which Paul is writing and in, in the world before sprinklers and irrigation. If the rain didn't come, the crops didn't grow. If the sun didn't shine in the right way, the crops didn't grow. If disease came, the crops didn't grow. And so this is his way of saying that in the church, its ministers, all its leaders, the people who do stuff in the church, need to have a, an honest and realistic appraisal of their value. Yes, they're valuable. They do something that's needed. Planting churches, preaching the word, offering leadership, these things are valuable and needed. But if you then look at the growth of the church and say, you know what, I did that. I brought it on with my own gifts, with my own teaching, with my own ability. Then you've you've thought wrongly about it. He says that he and Apollos both are God's fellow workers. They're God's co-workers in the work of building his church. This image, I think, can be a lifesaver in the church. It can be a lifesaver as a pastor. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but sometimes we pastors uh, struggle with an exalted view of our own importance. Did you know that? I don't don't know if you you knew that. Uh, There are probably more narcissists per capita in the Christian ministry than almost any field other than politics. Um, because, I mean, think about it. If you are some, you know, over time you, you stand up and you, you communicate and you hear people say, thank you, pastor, that was great. You're with people in some of the most tender and vulnerable moments of their lives offering care. And then if you're, if you're even halfway decent, most of the job is showing up and just being there and loving people. And then afterwards people say, I couldn't have gotten through it without you. And so you can, you can tend towards an exalted sense of your own importance to the work of God. And what Paul does here is he does, in a very helpful way, he knocks us down a peg or two. He said, this is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who wrote most of the New Testament. And you know what happened when he left his church? They replaced him. Uh, Another guy came in and did really good work, preached the gospel, built the church. One day, Lord willing, um, I will not be the pastor of this church. I hope it's a long, long time away. I hope it's a retirement party and, and been here for a very long time. But hopefully, by God's grace, one day we will hand over the leadership of this church to another minister, uh, that this work will have been planted and rooted and thriving enough for a next generation uh, to come into it, and I will be quickly replaced. I had a a seminary professor uh, say something to me that has always stuck with me. He said, uh, you'll be amazed at how quickly you're replaced in church. Uh, There'll be tears, there'll be a couple of months, there'll be a search committee, and then somebody else will be in, and everybody will love them, and that's great. The only place in your life that you cannot be replaced is at home, right? Your church can find another pastor, your kids can't find another dad, and you don't want your wife to find another husband, right? So be present in the place that you are not replaceable, and trust God with the work where you are replaceable, where you're truly a co-laborer with God and easily replaced.
So it is good medicine for pastors to know uh, that your work is important. But in God's plan, it's one piece of this much, much larger work. Secondly, it is very important, crucial, in the life of a church for the church to understand that all of her ministers are replaceable. It's important because it's a fundamental part of holding pastors accountable for their own moral lives, for their own spiritual lives. As headline after headline comes of the, the latest megachurch pastor who either in the abuse of his power uh, has abused others, sometimes sexually, sometimes just by abusing them verbally, emotionally, how many pastors are not removed because the church doesn't believe they can live without them, because their gifts are too special, they're too wonderful, and you start to begin to become too important to replace. And you know what? If Paul was not too important to replace, neither are any of us. And it's a fundamental building block of building a healthy church that says, you know what? All of our ministers, whether it's those who get paid uh, to lead the church, whether it's our lay deacons and elders and, and, and soon deaconesses, whether it's the, the, the person who leads a class in the children's ministry or leads a youth group, to know that each one of us brings our gifts, but we are co-laborers with God, that his work was going on before we got here and it will continue going on by Lord willing after we leave. And it is God's power that causes the church's growth, not our own gifts. Secondly, Paul reminds us, reminds the church in Corinth that because the church belongs to God, it's his foundation that gives it shape. That it's God's church, so he gets to choose the foundation on which his church will be built. And, uh, and to do that, he uses the metaphor of a building uh, being built on a foundation that's already been laid. This is what he starts here in verse 10 where he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. I do love this about Paul. This is a section where Paul is going to bend over backwards to be humble. He says, I'm just a gardener. I just watered a little bit. Later on, he's going to say, I'm a fool for Christ. But yet he still slides in. I'm not just a builder. I'm a wise master builder, right? So yeah, I only played a role, but I did it well. <laughs> I laid a good foundation. And what he says is the only appropriate foundation for the building up of the church is Christ. Verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We know earlier from, from chapter 2 that Paul doesn't mean just uh, generically the person of Jesus. He means the cross of Christ. He said, I, I, I was uh, committed to know nothing while I was with you except Christ and him crucified. That the church, in order to endure, has to be built on the foundation of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The story of what he has done in the world to build his church and to redeem the world is the only worthwhile foundation on which a church can be built. You know, uh, if you know anything about construction, of which I do not, um, you know that uh, the foundation of a building if the foundation is right, the building can be strong. If the foundation is faulty, then the building eventually will fall. I was speaking with a lawyer in our church who's in uh, the world of construction law, and he has been tied up in a lawsuit for years now over an apartment building that was built on a faulty foundation. And he says, we still don't know. This building was built uh, decades ago, and we still don't know the extent of the damage. We know that it's falling. <laughs> we know that it's not safe. 
Uh, but we don't know. When's it going to stop? How long is it going to sink? Where's the foundation going to end up? But faulty work at the beginning of the project, building on the wrong foundation, it didn't matter what they built on top of it after that point. It didn't matter whether it was in fine stones or in wood frame. It didn't matter, it didn't matter the, what was built on it because the foundation was weak. And Paul is saying here, the only fitting foundation for the church is the gospel. It's the only thing that will enable the church to live and to thrive and to survive in the midst of a world where it's often difficult, where temptation and sorrow and suffering abound, that only uh, the gospel can be our foundation. You know, the, uh, you see this if you visit older churches. The most, by far, uh, the most popular design of churches around the world and throughout church history is the cruciform church, the, the cross-shaped church. If you think about, if you've ever visited the cathedrals, uh, either in America or overseas, that most of them, no, no matter what's going on on the outside with the steeples and the flying buttresses and the stained glass, all of that, when you walk in, there's an unmistakable shape of the cross. You walk down a long nave and then you've got the, the cross arms and the altar there at the center. This was their way, these architects' way of saying that the church has to be shaped by the cross and has to be shaped like the cross. And there was a, their way of, of putting that in a metaphorical, physical way, what's a spiritual reality, that we simply have to be grounded uh, and firmly rooted in the gospel of Jesus. And so then he goes on to say that on that foundation, uh, each church builds, right? So that what we do when we plant a church and we seek to establish a new work is you first plant the gospel. You just, you just announce the gospel of the good news of Jesus. And then as the church is built, you build onto that foundation. And Paul says you can either build in a good way or in a bad way on top of that foundation. Look at what he says. He says, uh, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, for it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so he lists these different types of materials that can be built, uh, built up. They range from the very, very expensive and enduring to the very, very cheap and easily burnt up. And he says that uh, in this life, you can build on top of the foundation, you can build a church with varying kinds of materials, but there's some kinds that will endure into eternity, and there's other kinds that in the end are going to be revealed to have just been empty, right? You might be able to get construction to go up very, very quickly if you build with shoddy materials, but in the end, they won't stand. In the end, God's judgment will reveal uh, that they weren't really substantial, or you can build on these things that he, he is essentially describing a temple, a temple built of gold and precious stones. You can build with those things, and in the judgment, they'll be revealed to have been enduring and lasting. And so how do we know the difference? Right? How do we know whether or not what we're pouring our life into here in this church is going to be of the sort that's ephemeral and burned up and goes away, or if it's going to be the kind that lasts not only for our children and their children, but on into eternity, right? Because that's what we're trying to do, right? We're planting a church. We just got started at this a few years ago. We are still a baby church. We are still very much in the work of laying a foundation and starting to build on top of that foundation. And so what are the kinds of works that are a fitting building on the foundation of Jesus? 
Well, I believe that quite simply, it's those things that flow out of the gospel. Right? If the gospel of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the foundation, then what's worth building on top of it are those things that are the, the outworking of the gospel, the fruit of the gospel, lives transformed by hearing the gospel, growing up into Christ, the work of, of, of loving our neighbors well, of serving them, of seeking to better our community, the work of reconciliation that we're, that we're about as a church, that that is, is deep and lasting work that matters to God and will matter for eternity. Right? That's why when we talk about our vision as a church, that's our way of articulating the way that we say we want to build a church that matters in this life, in this city, and for eternity. And so we talk about that vision in, in three main categories. Personal transformation. We believe Jesus changes lives. Right? We believe that when, when the, every human being's deepest need is to see their sin and their need of a Savior and to see that Jesus is their Savior. We believe that the gospel changes lives as we continue to lay down our sin to see more of our need of our Savior. As we seek to live out the good news of the gospel in our homes and our families and our neighborhoods. That lives changed by the gospel is what the church is about. So personal transformation. An uncommon family of faith. You know, uh, in the world, we can basically tell who people are going to like and who they're going to hang out with. We tend to cluster with people who look like us, act like us, who make about the same amount of money we do, who vote the way that we do, uh, who eat the same kind of food that we do. And we say we want to be an uncommon family, a family that apart from Jesus Christ probably wouldn't hang out together. But because of the reconciling work of Jesus, we're learning to love one another and to be an uncommon kind of family where we don't all look the same, act the same, dress the same, vote the same, but where we come from different cultural families, different ethnic families to make up one new uncommon family. We believe that. In fact, we don't just believe that. We know from the book of Revelation that that is the kind of thing that will last into eternity. Right? When Jesus receives uh, praise in eternity, it's not all going to be in English by white folk. Right? It's going to be from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we believe we should pursue that here and now, and that's going to last forever. And then thirdly, the flourishing of our neighbors. Right? Jesus says that what we do for the least of these, we do to him. That when we clothe uh, those who need it, when we feed the hungry, that that's serving Christ in a way that will be eternal and long-lasting. You know, as a church, there are worse things than failing, right? There is something worse than trying to plant a church and failing at it, and that is succeeding at something that doesn't matter. It's being successful, it's building a crowd, and then at the end of the day, that to be exposed as essentially worthless. But if we build on the right foundation, the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if we build by simply following Christ and working out the gospel, applying it in our relationships and in our church and our neighborhood. Isn't it incredible to think that that we are actually building a church that will last into eternity, that it will endure as a lasting possession of God, and that it will matter in a profound way. We won't spend too much time on the things that will not last into eternity, uh, but to suffice it to say uh, that no pastors will have private planes in heaven, uh, we don't get to take our fog machines with us uh, when we go to heaven. Uh, but the enduring work, the enduring work of lives and communities changed by Jesus uh, will last forever. So it's God's foundation that gives it shape, and then it's God's presence that makes it vital.
He next shifts into this image, uh, this metaphor of the temple. Don't you know that you are a temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Right here, here he's saying that the church isn't just the invention of human beings. It's not just uh, our plan to figure out, hey, we met Jesus, what should we do? How should we, how should we try to tell people about him? Well, let's start churches. No, he says the church is God's temple. It's not up to human ingenuity that it's filled with his spirit, filled with his presence. Just as under the old covenant, uh, the temple in Jerusalem was filled with his presence and people could go there and literally see God, meet with God. That his temple was the, the, the epicenter of his presence on earth and that uh, people had visions of the whole earth flooding into God's temple. Now he's saying the church is his temple. You are the, the, not a physical building, but you are the living stones making up a temple filled with his presence. And that as that church goes into every community, out of the way places like Corinth and Jacksonville, that we actually bring the presence of God into our communities with us, into communities that doubt very much whether or not God is real, into communities that, that, that wonder whether God has, has remembered them or forgotten them. That when we bring God's spirit, we bring his presence into, the, into those places so that they know that God has not left them. And so that we are promised that we are filled with God's spirit. That God's spirit uh, is not an ephemeral thing that we have to wonder. It doesn't matter whether or not you felt something in a certain way that you expected to feel, maybe when you gathered to worship or in your personal life but that God's spirit is with us because he's promised us that we are his temple in the world. And then Paul ends uh, this section with what's become a bit of a refrain for him uh, so far in Corinthians, where he reminds us again uh, that the wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. You know, he said previously that the cross uh, looks like foolishness in the eyes of the world. To think that a man dying in capital punishment would be some way the hope of the world looks like foolishness. And now he pulls that in again, essentially to say, and the church also looks like foolishness in the eyes of the world. The world will look at the church and say, that broken group of people, that group of people that's just as plagued with sin and folly and brokenness and abuse and all of the things that plague the world are also there in the church. It is foolishness to believe that that group of people are God's plan for the world. That it looks like foolishness to anyone with realistic eyes who's looking at it. And yet Paul says, no, you're called to become fools, to believe that God is using the small and broken and despised things of this world to ultimately work out uh, its salvation in the world. Richard Hayes, uh, one of the great commentators on this book, has said that 1 Corinthians, uh, this call to a cross-shaped life, is a call to a conversion of the imagination, a conversion of the ma imagination, learning to see our world with new eyes, to see the cross with new eyes, to see the church with new eyes, 
to become fools. One of my favorite stories uh, in all of literature is the story of a fool. I love uh, the, the novel Don Quixote, the story of a man who in the world's eyes was an absolute fool, who lived in a disenchanted world, and yet who believed himself to be a knight, who believed himself to be a knight on a noble quest. And so he had an imagination that, that to the world looked foolish, and yet when he looked out on the world, where the world saw windmills, he saw giants to be fought. Where the world looked and saw a donkey, a mule, that he rode, he saw a mighty stallion. When the world looked and saw a barmaid who had a terrible reputation that no one would love, he looked and saw a princess. Right, he learned to view the world in this foolish but different way. And over time, the people around him come to start to view the world with a little bit of the magic that he views the world with. And there's something about this becoming a fool, learning to look at the cross and look at the church as God's plan for the world, that does make us look a little bit like Don Quixote, that enables you to be able to look at what's small and pitiable and looks weak and say, that is God's plan for the world that enables you to look and see a small and persecuted group of first century Christians worshiping in caves under the Roman Empire and to look at that little group of people and say that little group is what's ultimately going to topple an empire and lead to the the greatest movement the world's ever seen. It's that uh, converted imagination that can look at small groups of Christians today some meeting in caves and places where their faith is illegal, whether it uh, happens in the Muslim world, whether it happens in China, where tiny groups of Christians meet in crowded apartment buildings, while their government actively looks to hunt them. To look at that group and say, that little group is stronger than their empire, it's stronger than nations, it's, it's, it's the hope of the world. To look at a little church like this one, young, struggling, not too, I mean, we're, we're doing great, but, you know, we're, right? I mean, we're, 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 a, we're a fragile, young baby church, group of, a group of people that are finding freedom from their addictions in Christ, a group of people that are finding meaning and purpose in their life, that are finding love and grace in spite of their shame and guilt, to see that group of people meeting in a rescue mission and say, with, the, with this converted imagination, say, that's a cathedral, more beautiful than any of the cathedrals of Europe more beautiful than any stones or stained glass. That takes eyes opened by the gospel to see things upside down and new again and to believe that it's the hope of the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in spite of the brokenness of your church, in spite of our sin and our weakness, that you have never given up on us. In fact, you promise us that we belong to you and no one can snatch us from your hands. You tell us that we are written in your book of life and no one can blot our names out. Lord, we belong to you. And that's our hope. Not our own innovations, not our own strategies, not our gifts, not our goodness, not our abilities. But only the hope that we belong to you, that you fill us with your spirit that you call us to join us in your labors. So Lord, we pray that you would bless this little outpost of your kingdom, this young church. Lord, we, would, we pray that you would help us uh, to view our life and our calling as significant and beautiful in your eyes, 
that you would, by your Spirit, fill us and empower us, embolden us, as we seek to build on the foundation of the gospel, a church that will be enduring in this age and in the age to come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.